0: To Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Michael Kearns joins us to talk about protecting individual privacy while maintaining public safety. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, joining us today is our special guest, uh, Professor Michael Kearns from the University of Pennsylvania. He's an expert in privacy and public safety in terms of uh, computational frameworks. Uh, Today, he's going to tell us about one of his um, research topics on how to protect privacy while ensuring public safety. Uh, Dr. Kearns, thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you've written a very um, timely paper in the PNAS. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about it and... What was the background behind it?
1: Yeah, so this is a paper that I wrote with um, three terrific colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, another faculty member named Aaron Roth, our graduate student, Stephen Wu, and a postdoctoral fellow, uh, Gregory aroslav And um, I guess the backstory for the paper is a study that I participated in. It was actually requested by Obama's office. It was a request to the National Academy of Sciences to convene a panel of scientific and technological experts. And this was really a study that, whose context is sort of the Snowden revelations about the bulk collection of telephone metadata and other sorts of data by the National Security Agency. And in this study, we were asked whether there were near-term technological alternatives to the bulk collection of metadata that will, would still permit, you know, kind of effective counterintelligence work. There are many interesting things that um, were addressed in that study, and I should note that I had many terrific colleagues on that work as well and did the least work of anybody, but that being said, the, the kind of summary of the study was that the answer is no that there's sort of no good alternative to collecting this sort of social network contact data in the sense that the way it's used in counterintelligence work is often what they call contact chaining, which is there's some individuals that you know are bad actors, let's say terrorists, and you're using their social network contact data, for instance, who they might have phone calls with or other kinds of interactions with in order to kind of crawl through the network of social contacts and look for other you know, individuals that, you know, you might suspect are also bad actors, at which point you would do, you know, perhaps more intensive surveillance or other kinds of um, background investigation of those people. The study kind of concluded that there's no easy substitute for this data and for that kind of analysis because you don't really know who or exactly what you're looking for until you find it. Alternative ideas like putting the data behind some kind of um, firewall access where you have to explicitly beforehand submit a list of the people who you want to look at, you know, because of the way these searches are done in a way that kind of crawls incrementally or locally through the network, you kind of can't have an easy substitute for it. And so that was the that, that was sort of the, the impetus for our study, because, you know, one of the things I realized um, in participating in this earlier study was that a lot of conversations about privacy these days, or even, you know, kind of definitions of privacy, have, a, have an all or nothing flavor to them, by which I mean that, you know, either everybody gets some very strong privacy guarantee, or privacy is deemed to have failed entirely. And the kind of obvious thing dawned on me from the study, which is that there are situations like counterterrorism, where things are not so simple. Um, and the question that we addressed in our, you know, PNAS paper is whether it was possible to kind of balance efforts like counterterrorism while still providing some privacy guarantees for those individuals who are not the focus of your search, who are not kind of the targeted subpopulation, and that was kind of the starting point for our, our paper.
0: So, when you say privacy, do you mean anonymity, or do you mean some sort of uh, way to hide your identity?
1: So, um, we don't need hiding your identity. So, in particular if you kind of dig into the weeds of our paper, we do not provide guarantees that your very existence may not be revealed by the type of algorithm that we suggest. By privacy, we mean something you know very specific, um, but but also quite strong. At, at a high level, we work in a model that's called differential privacy, um, uh, an area which my co-author Roth, uh, Aaron Roth is one of the, the primary founders. And differential privacy, Conceptually, it's a pretty simple idea. Differential privacy asks that in some computation or some algorithm that no particular individual's data influences the output of the computation very much. Let me give perhaps the simplest example I know. You know suppose that a company decides every week to publish, let's say every Friday, the average salary of, of everybody in the company. And they decide to publish that number you know, with numerical or decimal precision. Okay, so you might think like, well, how could that compromise any individual's privacy, right? I mean, it's an aggregate statistic. It's the average of a large number of salaries. How could privacy of any particular person be compromised? But let's suppose that, you know, what happens between this Friday and next Friday is that exactly one person joins the company. Well, if you give me numerically precise values for the average salary on these two successive Fridays where only one person joined the company and nobody left, I can, you know, from simple arithmetic, figure out exactly what that new person's salary is, all right, even though it was an aggregate computation. So the idea of differential privacy asks that you publish kind of an approximation to the average salary that has the promise that it will be accurate, not as numerically accurate as if you released it to perfect decimal precision, but it would still be accurate, but also guarantee that you can't back out from those estimates any salary. And the way you basically would do this is you would compute the average salary first, and then you would add a little bit of noise to it. You would, you would corrupt it deliberately a little bit in a way that didn't change the value by, by very much, but wouldn't let you play games that let you infer the salary of individual people. Mm-hmm. So differential privacy is a model that generalizes this idea. It says like, well, in any computation, you could ask that any single person's in in any single individual's data can't influence the computation very much so another way of thinking about it is that whether your data is present or absent from the computation has only a minimal impact on the output of the computation in a in a precise kind of statistical sense that's part of the definition
0: does this have implications for you know other systems like say the stock market
1: well um, so differential privacy is a definition about algorithms so mm-hmm you know, algorithms are either differentially private or they are not differentially private. We've actually, and and so you can kind of take any computation that you want to think about and then ask whether there is a differentially private version of that computation. And to get back to your question, we've actually spent some time thinking about kind of post-financial crisis applications of differential privacy. So, for instance, you know, many people believe that the 08 financial crisis was either if not caused at least exacerbated by the fact that there were all of these uh, portfolios out there by large banks hedge funds and other financial institutions that turned out to be highly correlated i.e. everybody kind of was holding the same stuff they had you know highly correlated long and short positions and when you know the market started Um, crashing, and parties needed to liquidate their holdings to cover their losses, then everybody was kind of selling the same stuff at the same time and driving the price down. And it would have been nice to know you know, so to kind of have some sort of early warning system that would have collectively told all of these institutions that collectively they were highly correlated with each other. And the problem with this, of course, is that the easiest way of doing that is to say to all of them, okay, everybody tell, tell some centralized algorithm what your portfolios look like, and we'll tell you whether you know there's correlational concerns or not. But of course, you know the portfolio of a hedge fund is highly proprietary information to that hedge fund. And the last thing they want to do is, is submit it to some centralized algorithm you know, that might compromise the confidentiality of that uh, portfolio. So we thought about you know, whether or not one could give differentially private solutions to this problem, i.e. a centralized algorithm that could give a guarantee that it would output you know, a, some sort of measure of how correlated a large number of portfolios were with each other while still promising that no individual portfolio in that computation influenced the output of that computation much, and therefore you have a a very strong privacy guarantee.
0: Getting back to uh, the study, what was your biggest surprise or takeaway message from it? I think the biggest
1: takeaway message is, a you know, so we're providing a technical solution to a particular technical problem. I'm biased, but I think it's an interesting solution to an interesting problem. But I think the biggest takeaway message from this is that it's possible in a scientific way to talk about, first of all, pro- providing different levels of privacy to different members of a population in a rigorous, kind of mathematically precise, algorithmically formal way, um, and also, you know, so so in, in our paper, you know, more precisely we imagine that in a social network there are two subpopulations, the terrorists and the non-terrorists. And of course, you're not going to provide any privacy guarantees to the terrorists because the entire point of the algorithm we provide is to actually identify terrorists and, you know, take some subsequent action on them. But you'd like to do so in a way that still provides some privacy guarantees to the people that are not terrorists, And you know, that's something that our algorithm does in the context of differential privacy. So there's kind of two things going on here. One is, is different levels of privacy for different members of the population. And also the idea of trading off the amount of privacy that you provide to individuals with the utility of the calculation that you're doing. And this is something that's kind of fundamental to differential privacy. So all differential privacy algorithms, you know, all differentially private algorithms essentially come with a knob that the user of the algorithm can tune. And, you know, if you set the knob one way, if we go back to this example of deliberately corrupting the average salary in a company with noise, well, if you set the noise to zero, you don't corrupt it at all then you release a number that's extremely accurate and precise, but nobody has any privacy in this calculation. If I corrupt the number by a lot of noise, then I make very strong privacy guarantees to each individual. But then the number that I'm publishing is basically garbage. It'll have so much corruption that it won't be a useful approximation to the average. And this happens in all differentially private algorithms, and it also happens in our PNAS paper, where, you know, now this knob that, that's adding noise to the algorithm that we propose, if you, if you add a lot of noise, the algorithm won't be very effective in finding the terrorist subpopulation in the network, and individuals will have extraordinarily strong privacy guarantees. If you add no noise to the calculation, you'll kind of be maximally effective at finding the terrorists, but provide them, you know, no privacy to people. And you can set this knob anywhere in between you know we're not proposing where that knob be set for counterterrorism for example but i think it's a very important part of privacy discussions to be able to discuss these trade-offs these trade-offs between which subpopulation you're going to provide stronger or weaker privacy guarantees to and what the what the trade-off will be between the strength of those privacy guarantees and how effective the algorithm is for doing whatever computation you want to do including counterterrorism efforts
0: basically you want to see the the forest for the trees yeah or, or more precisely in the case of counterterrorism right
1: I mean the the thing that's a little different about our algorithm from many other differential privacy algorithm differentially private algorithms is that you know the output of the algorithm we propose will actually be a list of individuals in the targeted subpopulation so in counterterrorism it would actually be identifying verified terrorists in the in the mathematical model that we work in. So you might you know wonder, well, how is how is that? What is the noise doing in this case? So the noise is basically reprioritizing really the, the the people that the algorithm is investigating, so to speak. So um, you can think of this algorithm as working at each step um, as kind of having a rank ordering of individuals to investigate further, Um, and the noise is essentially doing some kind of local reordering of that list in a way that promises privacy for people who kind of aren't the focus of the investigation. So if you want to kind of use the forest and trees analogy, it's not like we're really blurring our eyes so that we don't see the individual trees, because in this application, you know, we need to see the individual trees because the individual trees might be terrorists. But what we're really doing is kind of shuffling the forest around in a way that protects the trees that aren't the focus of the investigation.
0: You know, on a slightly tangent topic, you know, there's a lot of discussion lately on the idea of encryption and the privacy of individuals. And, you know, it's a very complex issue. There's not really a consensus in the public in terms of what's appropriate for, say, you know. Phone companies or social networks to have degrees of encryption. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on this uh, matter?
1: You know, needless to say, these are complicated topics. I mean, the the first thing I might say is a non-answer to your question. But you know, I think one thing that needs to be sorted out in in kind of public discourse on these topics is that privacy and cryptography are related but distinct notions. I mean, and the way I would put it at a high level is. You know, cryptography is a technology meant to make sure that people don't learn things that they shouldn't, that they don't see data that they shouldn't, right? And differential privacy is more about what can be inferred from what you are allowed to see, right? So people often propose kind of cryptographic solutions to privacy problems, but that sometimes sidesteps the important question of like, well... You know, sure, if I if if I encrypt things, then I may not be allowed to see certain data. But privacy is more about what can be inferred from the data that I can see and what unforeseen inferences might be made from that data. So, you know, there are all these great examples in the privacy literature of cases where, let's say, two different parties each published or released some allegedly anonymized database and each one of those databases in isolation was in fact anonymous. But when you joined or merged these two databases, you could actually back out from the combined databases specific data about specific individuals. So you kind of de-anonymized the data by this this merging operation. And that's why it's very important in privacy to not just sort of say, is the output of this particular computation private? You also have to think about whether privacy might be breached by the combination of the output of that algorithm with some subsequent unforeseen release of a data set. And differential privacy is kind of the only privacy model I know that, that kind of addresses this question head on. Cryptography is doing something different. Cryptography is kind of locking data up, right? But locking data up, you know, it's not a solution to many, many many, many, you know, circumstances in the modern era, right? I mean, in many circumstances, people want their data to be available, right? They want to be interacting with each other on Facebook. If they're going to see ads anyway, they may actually want to see ads that are targeted towards them based on their demographics or on their web browsing history, etc., rather than seeing ads that are completely irrelevant to them. So cryptography is incredibly powerful and useful, but it's really about kind of locking data up. And there's a lot of circumstances these days in which people really don't want their data locked up, but they do want to control it, and they do want to know, you know, is it the case that releasing this data about myself might allow inferences to be made about data that I didn't want released? And cryptography is not really addressing that question directly.
0: In terms of the, the models you use for... Your study, do they what What does it involve? Neural networks or other types of, of modeling?
1: I mean, uh, at a high level, our, our algorithm is actually a very simple modification of standard algorithms for using social network data to search for a subpopulation of individuals, right? So these these algorithms kind of start with a, a seed node in the network, and then they gradually search or crawl out from that seed node looking for other members of this subpopulation. And so there's no, there's no sort of fancy statistical models underlying uh, this particular paper. And I actually think that that's a merit, right? Because in some sense, if you're even going to philosophically propose alternative algorithms to, you know, for counterintelligence purposes, I, I think the, the less of a departure they are from standard techniques, the better. And And so, there's no fancy statistical modeling going on. It's really just a, a new algorithm for kind of crawling through the links in a social network um, while you're looking for people with a particular property and doing so in a way that kind of adds noise, as I suggested, um, so that the contact or link data of the people who are not your targets is you know not revealed by the output of the algorithm. No neural networks, nothing <laughs> nothing too fancy. And I think that, you know, simplicity in this particular case is a virtue.
0: Great. Uh, I think you've articulated the issues here really well and uh, hope this brings a little bit of more clarity to our audience. So I guess we're running a little out of time. Uh, are, are there any last words you'd like to add about your work or your interests? No,
1: I just, um, you know, I think the to me, the best outcome of this work would be if um, it, it kind of inspired further research along this same direction of, of still trying to provide mathematically rigorous privacy guarantees, but acknowledging that society often faces settings where not everybody has either the same right or expectation or even demand for privacy and to kind of come up with more nuanced algorithms that can accommodate these, these different levels of privacy.
0: Great, great. Um, Dr. Kearns, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking to Professor Michael Kearns from the University of Pennsylvania. His work on algorithms to protect privacy while ensuring public safety was published in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us up on the web at www.groks.net on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.